Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. When choosing among options like becoming a leader, helping others, and becoming more spiritual, half of millennials say that their generation's first or second most important goal is being famous. When teenagers in the UK were asked what they'd like to do for their career, over half said they wanted to be a celebrity. And amongst kids polled in the US and in the UK, three times more said they'd like to become a YouTube star than an astronaut. How did fame and modernity's particular flavor of fame rise to such prominence? Has fame always been attractive and how has its meaning changed over time? My guest answers these questions in his book, The Frenzy of Renown, Fame and Its History. His name is Leo Brody. He's a professor of English literature, film history and criticism and American culture at USC. Today on the show, Leo takes us on a wide ranging tour through the history of fame, which he describes as an emotion, an ambition to be somebody, to be known, the shape of which changes depending on the audience to which people look in order to gain the desired attention. We begin and Leo will explain why Alexander the Great before turning to what fame meant for the Romans, whose audience was not just the immediate public, but their posterity. We then turn to how Christianity changed the idea of fame to something based on private, inward virtue, where one's only true audience was God. We then dig into how the Renaissance gave birth to the idea of the artist, who regardless of social class, could gain fame through his talent and creativity. We discuss how the rise of mass media created a new kind of even more democratized fame, and a dynamic which would come to rest on a reciprocal relationship between the famous and their fans. Leo argues that fame in the the 20th century became more about being rather than doing, a trend which has only accelerated in the age of social media. At the end of our conversation, Leo makes the case for return to a positive, ennobling conception of fame in which recognition must be earned and connected to actual greatness. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is fame. Leo joins you now via clearcast.io. Leo Brody, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks. Great to be here, Brett. So we had you on the podcast about three years ago to talk about your book about war and masculinity, how war has influenced masculinity throughout time. It's an epic cultural history. I wanted to bring you back on the show to talk about a book, another epic cultural history you wrote about the topic of fame. And the book is called The Frenzy of Renown. And originally published in 1986, and then you did an update with an afterword in 1993. It's one of my favorite books. I'm curious, what do you think that people can learn about what it means to be human by studying the history of fame? Well, it's not just being human, because that that is an important part of it, because I think we can see fame as a kind of more intensified version of how we are in public our social selves. And uh, often people take cues. I mean, this is it. They take cues from famous people. They take cues from celebrities. They cues about how to dress, cues about how to engage with other people. So that's, that's definitely part of the human side. And perhaps learning about the history of fame, I would hope, allows us to stand back a little bit rather than just to plunge in in a kind of unselfconscious way just to imitate other people, other selves, other other kinds of models of the public self. So in the book, you make the case that the idea of fame, as we know it today, gets its start with Alexander the Great. We see it's kind of the birth of it. What did Alexander the Great do that was different from previous ancient rulers? Because there were, there were famous rulers before Alexander the Great, like the pharaohs and things like that. But you think you you make the case that he did something different. What was it that was different from those previous famous rulers? 
Part of part of what makes Al, I what reason that I start with Alexander is actually I went backwards. You know, a lot of my training, my academic training, graduate school, when I did my early academic work, was in the 18th century. And one of the things I noticed about the 18th century about people who wrote then was how often they compared themselves to the Romans, to the you know the classical period. They wanted to be like. Roman writers in a variety of ways. They wanted to invoke Roman ideas. So I went back to Rome and I discovered that the Romans kept invoking Alexander. So I would go back to Alexander. And then it seemed to me that Alexander was a good start because unlike the pharaohs that you mentioned, I mean, the pharaohs are famous within Egypt. They build large statues to themselves and things like that. Alexander had a much a much wider urge to be famous. He wanted to combat with the gods, basically. He wanted to be more famous than the heroes of, of the Iliad, particularly of Achilles. And not only did he want to do that, he wanted everybody to know about it. When he took his army over to Persia there in the Persian Wars, uh, from which he never returned, of course, he took along with him historians, he took along with him painters, sculptors, even people who designed gems, things like that, all in order to memorialize memorialize his activities, his triumphs, his fame, essentially. I, well, he also wanted to send the news back to a particular audience as well, to, uh, to Athens, Remember, Alexander was an outsider. Alexander was from Illyria, Alexander Macedonia. He, um, in fact, wanted to become famous in Athens, that Athens was the center of the world then. And Athens, I mean, let's say the way all the publishers are in New York, things like that, for so, where had been certainly for a long time. That is, what is the center of the dissemination of fame? Let's focus on that and let's bring, let's make myself famous in that place. And another point you made that I thought was interesting about Alexander, what made him different, like previous rulers like pharaohs or other rulers before then, they, they were trying to be famous within a role. Like they just, they were going to be like a famous pharaoh. Like Alexander wanted to be famous for being Alexander. For being Alexander and for doing the things that Alexander did, like the famous Gordian Knot story, I mean, that has nothing to do with winning a battle. What that has to do is, you know, it's kind of stepping outside. How does he solve the Gordian Knot? No one can untie the Gordian Knot. And Alexander just goes there and cuts the Gordian Knot. So he steps outside the standards of the tradition of the Gordian Knot and destroys it himself. And I think that in the same way, when he was going through Persia and into India with his army, he would always try to find out what was, who were the local gods and what did they do? And so he'll come in, for example, let's say he'll come into an area and the locals will say, well, you know, there's that big hill over there that only Hercules could have climbed, you know, and that he did that once and, you know, he was the great hero. And Alexander says, okay, and he immediately just zips up that hill and he supersedes Hercules. This is exact. He wants to supersede myth. He wants to become a kind of myth himself. So that was Alexander, this idea of superseding myth and being famous for being Alexander. How did the, so you mentioned the Romans picked up their cues on what it meant to be famous from Alexander. How did fame, how did the Romans take what Alexander started and, and change it? Well, Rome, of course, is a, is a place, uh, is a famous city. It's a city that 
in fact, you know, ruled a large portion of the known world at that time. And so part of part of what Rome did to this idea of fame was kind of to look at it in terms of who are you in public? Roman fame, classical fame in that way, and this is taking a cue from, from Alexander, is public fame. It's the fame of the athlete. It's the fame of the orator. It's the fame of the politician standing uh, on the rostrum and speaking to people there. So you achieve fame in the Roman Republic by being present in that way, by being physically present and by swaying your immediate audience. And in the same way, let's say that Alexander wanted the news to go back to Athens, the news is already there in Rome. You had to establish your fame in the Roman context, in the forum there, uh, in the Senate, as as did Caesar, as did Cicero, as did so many of the Roman sort of orator politician types or, or politician slash general types. Well, another point you made about the early Roman Republic was that personal fame was often, con- well, it was, it was contingent upon increasing the fame of, of Rome itself. So you, those, so those interests align. Like if you could advance the fame of Rome, then you yourself would also become famous. Yes. And, and, you know, as we'll go along, I think it's, there's an interesting analogy between that and what happens in the 18th century, let's say with, uh, with America, the way uh, someone like uh, Ben Franklin, for example, increases his own fame and increases the idea of being an American and what, and that kind of difference. So, I mean, Rome comes onto the public stage in that way, not only because it conquers so many people, but because it's a famous place and it's a place where fame can, can be achieved. So it draws people into it in the same way that great cities have drawn people into it ever since. And another point you make, sort of, the, the, as you see the evolution of fame, particularly you see this in Rome, and then moving onward, is that audiences change. Like, who were you famous for? Like, whose approbation were you looking for? And in, in the ancient Rome, like today, we think of fame. Well, I just want to be famous, like with people who are alive now and on the internet or whatever. But the Romans, that was part of it. But they were also thinking about, I want to know, like, will my posterity be talking about me hundreds, thousands of years from now? Absolutely. The, you know, the words for fame goes back to Roman words for speaking. And, you know, the whole question of something, of course, again, that, as you say, connects with what's happening to us today, the whole question of whether your fame is immediate and exists in the present moment, or whether your fame will be ever, everlasting is a kind of constant issue in the history of fame. If we go back, you know, in Indo-European, you know, the kind of mother language of uh, Europe and so many and other places, uh, in Indo-European, there's a phrase that called a calc there called undying fame. This is what you want, undying fame. What does that mean? It means in the future, you will be famous. But part of that also is that your fame, that real fame, real fame in, in the Roman sense, starts only after you're dead. That is, there is the immediate fame of speaking to other people, of that immediate audience, the people right in front of you. And then there is the long lasting fame uh, that people will speak of you after you are gone and continue to speak about you after you're gone. So in the history of Rome, there's the Republic and then there's empire. Did fame change as Rome shifted from Republic to empire, like the concept of fame? 
Not not very much, I wouldn't think. You know, there's the you know the real alternative to the kind of fame, Roman fame, I was talking about. Another sort of Roman fame is what's established and discussed and delved into by the writers there. Virgil in the Aeneid, Ovid in the Metamorphosis, places like that. And they have a very contrasting view of fame there. For Virgil, Aeneas leaves Troy. Aeneas comes to then to North Africa, meets Dido. Dido, he and Dido fall in love. But Aeneas has a destiny. That's that undying fame. He has to go on to undying fame. And part of going to undying fame is to continue on to found Rome and, you know, to, to establish the great city. So for Virgil, the feminine takes you away from, you know, what ought to be your, your destiny, let's say, instead of fame versus fate, let's say you want your destiny to be this kind of undying famous person who was found in Rome. Ovid takes the, the total other point of view, in fact. For Virgil, as I said, you know, the feminine, uh, gods and men have to work together to create history. The feminine takes you away from history into the private world. It has to be dispensed with. He has to leave Dido behind there. But for Ovid, in fact, the gods are really competitors of men and rapists of women and are, in fact, you know, what hinders true fame, which is private fame. So, I mean, once again, you get that contrast between is the urge to be public, the urge to have that audience, or the, the urge to to be private, you know, to cultivate your own garden, you might say, as Voltaire did in the 18th century, to turn away from the public world and turn into the, the world of private life and private values, in fact. Well, another group uh, in ancient Rome that attacked that public nature of fame and advocated for the sort of private fame, a private life, were the Stoics. Mm-hmm. How did they influence the idea of fame? The Stoics are interesting. I, I you know, uh, in terms, let's say, of the the march of the history of fame, I would see the Stoics as kind of progenitors, or you know, early versions of a more what we'll we'll come to talk about a Christian idea of fame. That is a fame that is a fame about eternal values rather than a fame of public life. There, I mean, Stoic values, uh, Stoic internalism, turning inward, cultivating the self, you know, rather than the the social self, the inner self, rather than the social self, is is something that that leads, uh, I think, as you know, one of the many things that leads to the kind of things that Christianity brings in when it contrasts uh, Christian fame with uh, Roman fame, you know, as Jesus does when he holds up that coin. In the Gospels, you know, he says, render unto Caesar and render unto God. That's the contrast right there. Caesar is the immediate world. God is the eternal world, of course. Well, yeah, well, let's talk about Christianity because that, the, the, that was a big attack on, on the idea, the ancient idea of fame. And this is happening during the Roman Empire. And in fact, part of the reasons the Romans thought the Christians were weird and, you know, deserved persecution was like, they, they retreated from public life. They went to themselves. So how did Christianity change your ideas of fame? Well, Christianity, by emphasizing the soul and emphasizing the community, the egalitarianism, let's say, of the community of believers, you know, we all have a soul in that way, identifies, you know, sort of emphasizes 
that that kind of inwardness as the essence of personal identity there. Whereas in the Roman context, you know, you might have had an inner life, of course, but in fact, your identity is really social. Your identity is among other people there. So the community of the faithful versus the community, let's say, of the orator's audience or the politician's audience is a very sharp contrast, certainly in early Christianity there. And I mentioned that, you know, render unto Caesar, render unto God thing. That is, okay, what kind of fame is it? It's a fame that is in the future. It is a fame because who is your real audience? Your real audience isn't other people. Your real audience is God. You act in a way that God would approve, not applauded by other people. And that, I think, is really you know, an important uh, and crucial moment in the history of fame where the, the Christian and, let's say, the classical, the Greco-Roman views of fame come into direct conflict. And what's interesting, too, I think people overlook this, is that uh, Christianity, like the beginning of Christianity, paved the way for our modern concept of the individual. And before that, like you said, like you weren't, the self was social. And so people who basically individualism or what it meant to be an individual was relegated primarily to aristocrats. It was very elite, very few people. Christianity said, no, everyone's the same because we're all children of God. And slowly that would lead to, I guess, I guess a democratization of of an, of the individual. Yes, absolutely. And it's, it's very important. Of course, it's, uh, it's changed a lot <laughs> over the centuries, but that was really, uh, incredibly significant at the time. Uh, and later as it, you know, as it turned into other ways, you know, you were tracing it up through the idea of individuality. I would say that even gets more stressed with the Reformation and with the rise of Protestantism. But in fact, um, the, the idea that you are, you are a child of God, as you say, the idea that everyone is, the idea that there's a kind of e- equality among people, that in fact, the, uh, what would you call it, the, the kind of uh, social coincidence that some people are born aristocrats and others are born plebeians or slaves even, that is irrelevant to, to the way that God sees you and irrelevant to, to your uh, relationship to God. And this this would pave. I mean, I think the big, one of the big themes in your book is that, that you weave throughout the book is that fame, the idea of of being known, becomes more and more democratized as we get closer and closer to the modern era. So, mm-hmm. like before, with Alexander the Great, only Alexander the Great could be famous, and then you move to the Romans, and like, well, the Roman aristocrats could be famous, and then you have this shift with Christianity. Well, everyone's a, is it, it has is an individual with worth and dignity. And from there, people, well, if I'm just as good as an aristocrat, then I should have a claim to being known as well. And you started seeing that in the Renaissance, like this this democratization of fame started really taking, like going full steam ahead in the Renaissance. How how did fame change during the Renaissance? Well, Renaissance is a step in the, another step in this history of fame. And certainly one of the very important things about the, uh, the Renaissance, I think, is that uh, the Renaissance looks back to the classical period and it looks back to, to the writers and the authors of that period. So in the arts then, I mean, the idea of somebody like, I don't know, Michelangelo, for example, you know, somebody who in fact, you know, is not an aristocrat, doesn't come from, 
doesn't come from a, a highfalutin social background or anything, but is a great artist. You know, the idea of a great artist, that is somebody who has no social cachet at all from his family background, can be great. I mean, they're, they're that kind of individualization. Or Galileo. I mean, that is the, the scientists, the artists, the people who work with their hands and their minds, the creators. That is, a, a, the Renaissance really focuses on that so so definitely and that is another step there it's not just everybody that may wait i mean that's sort of what's happening now you know but in fact it's people with talent if you have that internal talent if you have that sense of self if you have that ability you can be that they could look back let's say for example to someone like horace Horace's poems are all about, you know, I'm just this guy who lives off in the countryside on a farm, but, but in fact, he has this insight and he has this poetic ability. So, you know, the, the breaking down of the hierarchy of class structure, I think, is, is something that's pushed forward tremendously by the Renaissance. Yeah, I thought the interesting point you made in the section about the Renaissance was during this time, artists started signing their work. Like before that, like the works of art were known by the person who was the, the patron, mm-hmm. like, like the Pope or the King that commissioned the piece. During the Renaissance, like Michelangelo, like, no, Michelangelo did this. And that was a big change. Well, absolutely. And it, it, this is the moment when the artist before this was an artisan. The artist was hired by a church or a patron or whoever it was uh, under the, you know, the the umbrella of international uh, Catholicism, you know, to do an altarpiece, uh, to do a statue, whatever it was. They're an artisan. So, I mean, you were hired for your talent, for your ability, but you were still a hireling. You were still like, you know, like the like a plumber or something like that. But with the Renaissance, the artisan becomes an artist, potentially, not everybody, of course. But, you know, th- that is you can break out of this because you are in touch with some kind of creativity and you want to be known for having done this. Um, you look at medieval things and, you know, it's always a question in art history, who actually did this? So when do we start knowing who did this? It's really with the Renaissance and with people signing things. There was an interesting thing I saw in the paper the other day. I, I've forgotten exactly where. Some some big cathedral, again, from the Middle Ages, and they found, they had never noticed this before, but way up in the top there among all the gargoyles and things like that, the the sculptor, the otherwise anonymous unknown sculptor had done a little figure, which presumably was a figure of himself. So there's always that, there was that urge, you know, but with the Renaissance, those kinds of urges come together in the idea of the artist and the artist's particular creativity, you know, connected to the muse, connected to to spiritual beings, even. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. And now back to the show. All right, so the Renaissance was another step into this democratization of fame. You mentioned the Reformation, and then also, along with the Reformation, like the democratic movements that happened in the the 17th and 18th centuries, and like early 19th centuries, also shaped how we think about fame. What happened in the fame during that period of time? Well, with the rise of Protestantism, I mean, again, you have a kind of breaking out. I mean, you have kinds of fame that didn't quite exist uh, before. Let's say... 
you know, Thomas Aquinas or other kinds of theologians of the Middle Ages, uh, you know, were known to their groups and were known to other theologians. But somebody like Martin Luther or somebody like Calvin or Zwingli or the, you know, the, the great figures of the Reformation were known for themselves. And, and part of this, part of this is really a crucial element, which we'll, I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about further is printing. Printing comes in the dissemination of work. You were mentioning about signing a painting. What about signing a, a sermon? You know, signing a pamphlet. You know, in, so in this time of great religious controversy, we have a new medium which allows the image, not only the image, but also the words, the particularly words of, of different kinds of speakers, different kinds of writers to be disseminated to wider and wider audiences. Okay, and another thing that happened too, uh, I thought was interesting during this time, you had, you know, the rise of, I don't know, capital, like, you know, basically like a middle class, like an upper, it wasn't an aristocrat, but they're a middle class and they were able to afford, you know, they could print their own book if they wanted to, or they could even sit for their own painting, which was something that only kings did before, but now, you know, an upper middle class, I don't know, lawyer could do that as well if they wanted to. Yes, that's absolutely true. I mean, this is, this is the, you know, the, the beginning of great age of portraiture, uh, that people can, could have their portraits painted by, by the famous painter in town or whoever, it, whoever it might be, or even let's say in early America by a traveling painter. Uh, I would talk about this is a little bit later in the 18th century, but traveling painters would go around and do people's portraits and just portraits of families. So this idea of, you know, your personal image, uh, the potential for disseminating or let's say creating posterity, personal image, you know, becomes a possibility. It's connected to a, to a more uh, intense sense of individualism. I think you might even, you know, let's say in a kind of a crude formula you know, that soul is turning into self here. Soul is the basis for self. Soul, as you mentioned before earlier, has something to do with, you know, in the early Christian context, it has to do with, with personal identity, with inner self, with the discovery of an inner self. And now this, this, that inner self is becoming a self. Soul is turning into self. That is, there's a secularization of the Christian idea of the soul into the secular idea of the self. And so, you know, the personal desires, the efforts to, in quotation marks, to be somebody uh, you know, finds its roots in this particular period. And again, I think we had to pinpoint, like, or reiterate, this is, a, this is a radical break. Before that time, you were just, okay, if you were born a peasant, you're born on a farm, like, that's where you'd probably die. And then you just kind of accepted that. With the Thanks to the things like the Renaissance, the Reformation, democratic movements, the idea was implanted in people's head like, no, I can actually run a rest fate into my hands and like and 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 shape how I want to be. And I can even I have control over my future if I want, and I can be somebody if I want to be. It's an interesting question, interesting point too. You know, to me, in terms of some recent work I've been doing, I mean, it's at least in England, this is a very uh, England specific, but it's an interesting moment, let's say, because in the middle of the 17th century, the King of England is, gets his head cut off by the people of England. 
So this idea that in a monarchy, for example, what's the fame structure of a monarchy? It's a, it's like a mountain. It's like a, you know, a triangle with an apex at the top where there's only one person there. But if you cut off the top, if you cut off that, that say that in fact that authority can be considered to be illegitimate there, then there are all sorts of different ways. I mean, you know, my metaphor for, uh, for a monarchical view of fame is, is a mountain. And, uh, but for a democratic view of fame, it's like a mountain range. There are all sorts of ways to get to the top. And so the possibility, uh, you know, the, the idea that I have something in me that will make me want to be more than how I was born, you know, is, is a poss- is, you know, is a distinct effort. Uh, on, on the part of many individuals. Remember, remember Jesus said, you know, about leave, you know, again, the, it's intriguing to me, you know, how so much of this, uh, secularizes, uh, a lot of early Christian ideas. You know, Jesus said you had to leave your family and you know, unjoin me to separate yourself from your background there. So in this more secular view of fame, it's, it's very similar. You know, you separate yourself. You are not determined by your background. You are not determined by the the uh, level of society that you were born into, you are only determined by your ambition, your talent, uh, your sense of self. And that that can be very ennobling, right? Inspiring. That I, I have control, but there also like you point out in the book, there's some perils with that idea because the peril is well, if you're not somebody um, based on your grit and whatever, then it's your own fault. There's and. That's it's seen almost as like a moral failure if you're not known publicly for your efforts or merit. There's definitely that downside. That's the downside. I mean, individualism, let's say, you know, brings in the positive side of yes, I'm going to be untrammeled. I'm going to, you know, you know, like in that song fame, you know, I'm going to live forever. I, you know, I got to know how to fly. I can do all these things. But if you don't do all these things, it's, then it's a burden. Then, it's a, you know, say, okay, it's your own fault. You're probably not that good. You're probably, so that's the negative side as well. Uh, that's the, you know, that's the, the pitfall that of, of this, ind- you know, this democratization of fame. If, if it's open to everybody, why didn't you do it? You know, what's the matter with you? And it, and it gets harder to become famous. There's, there's more competitors for fame because you're competing with everybody. Yes, I mean that, that, that mountain range is getting lower and lower. It's getting bigger and bigger, wider and wider. It's yeah, you, there are just too many people, you know, vying for fame. There's crowds uh, there. So, what comes back in the 19th century among some writers, I think, is is a turning away from that competitive world, which we might call commercial civilization, and saying that, in fact, if I'm really good, I'm, my work will last after I'm gone. That is the idea of posterity. You know, it, the only real test of your work is the audience of people who will be around after you're dead. So, I mean, you know, that's, that, that's a kind of more, it's kind of a retreat into a, uh, what, a kind of moral decision that you know, you don't even want to be known in the present moment. So once again, you know that kind of present moment versus the future. You know, fame in the immediate fame versus fame uh, in posterity, undying fame. There comes into play. And also during the 19th century, you see this idea of authenticity rise up 
And for, I mean, that's a word that gets thrown around a lot these days. But like, what did it mean for like a 19th century artist or writer to be authentic? And how did that shape their ideas of what it meant to be famous? Well, I think part of part of the the definition of being authentic in that way for for writers and and for artists uh, is um, what I was referring to uh, earlier about turning away. I mean, it's the kind of I I refuse immediate fame. I mean, the whole idea is, for example, of the avant garde or the bohemian. You know, any the idea of people who opt very specifically to step outside the regular social order uh, the re- and refuse to climb the social ladder, you know, what has now become the social ladder of, of becoming famous, becoming a known person, I think uh, is, is really part of this. Uh, you are authentic because you are true to yourself there rather than true to an audience which might be a degraded commercial audience i mean and that, you know i think that's that that is a an attitude which we still have with us i mean that is people uh, who are often who who get to be famous artists and writers are feel very nervous about it i remember a, a old friend of mine who you know was a was actually a great artist uh, and very much celebrated painter uh, told me this story once of how he, when he was a young artist and, you know, working away and somebody came to his studio, a rich person and said, oh, I'm going to buy all, I'm going to buy 10 or 12 of your paintings. And the guy left and, uh, you know, his wife said, oh, aren't you happy about that? And he said, no, God, it's totally depressing. I must be an awful artist if this rich person wants my work. Well, yeah, like the uh, the transcendentalists, like Emerson and Thoreau, mm-hmm. they talked a lot about that. They wanted to, you know, you march to the beat of your own drummer. Like Thoreau even goes to Walden, retreats completely from public life. Right. But what's interesting about those guys is like they they had this idea of like spiritual, like a spiritual fame, right? They were mm-hmm. famous for posterity or famous for you know they just they did what they wanted to do. But at the same time, like they still wanted like a little bit. They still wanted that rec- public recognition from the right people. Yes, you want the you want the appropriate audience. You want the right people to recognize you. You don't want to become a commercial success in the same way. Milton's John Milton in Paradise Lost at one point talks about his audience and he says, "Fit audience find though few." That is it has to be the fit audience. He said, I don't care that my work is not being celebrated. I don't care that I'm not reaching a lot of people, but I want to reach the people who know and the people who can really appreciate me. So the, the, the separation, you know, the, the march to the beat of a different drummer, the, you know, the go to Walden Pond, all those efforts of various writers and artists uh, in the 19th century, especially in like the first half of the 19th century, I would say, they, you know, they want to find that, that special, that separate audience. Because in part, what does that mean? In part, it means it's a more intimate relationship. It's not being cheered by huge crowds. It's a very intimate and private relationship with individual readers, viewers, listeners, whoever they are. So it looks like there's a distinction between what we can call like true fame and what we call like vulgar fame or just plain celebrity. 
Like th- that, you start seeing that distinction arise in the 19th century. Well, it's also there in Rome. It's also there in Rome. I mean, the idea of vulgar fame, the, the fame of the vulgus of the, you know, of the, the, the general versus true fame. It, it's there in Virgil, even in the Aeneid. Uh, you don't, you don't want vulgar fame. You don't want the fame of, of large crowds cheering you. Uh, you want the fame of people who really understand you and understand your work. Another thing, something that happened in the 19th century, a lot of what we know as popular culture got its start there. You see the rise of magazines, sports celebrities, actor celebrities, mass communication. And with it, you see the rise of the fan. It's the birth of the fan in the 19th century. How did the idea of the fan, how did that change fame and what it meant to be famous? I was thinking, you know, the fan, the idea of fandom has an interesting history. It's not called a fan for a long time. You could say, in fact, the people who were reading uh, Luther's pamphlets, the people who were amazed at the paintings of uh, Leonardo da Vinci or other Renaissance artists or Rembrandt could be called fans. They're kind of an audience. I mean, if you keep looking for those kinds of paintings. But in fact, you know, the idea of the fan, I think, really does rely on a kind of sense of popular culture and a sense of of who are the people that you're paying attention to. Somebody like James Boswell uh, in the the, the 18th century would go and visit Rousseau. He'd go and visit Voltaire. He became great friends with Samuel Johnson. He wrote the biography of Samuel Johnson. He was like the the first fan, uh, mega fan, let's say, uh, in a lot of ways. But with the 19th century, of course, with the expansion of media in the 19th century, you get the expansion of fandom. Even somebody like uh, Lord Byron, you know, had a screen that had pictures of boxers. He was very enamored of various boxers on it. So there's this sense of the availability of information about people that you could become a fan of through magazines, you know, through, and of course, as the, the century wears on through photography, later through, and later, obviously, through radio, television, et cetera, there too. So the expansion of media is an expansion of fandom as well. And, the, you know, the desire to, in a sense, what would you call it, kind of be in the aura of the famous person? This is what the fan really wants. The fan gets uh, some some shedded fame from being the fan there, uh, a kind of sub fame. Famous people have that have that aura, and they have you know, oh, I saw Brad Pitt at the supermarket the other day. Some you know something like that. That is, ooh, I'm important. I, you know, I had I had this sighting. This is things that happen in Los Angeles all the time, of course. So it's the fandom is very connected. To, to the expansion of media and to this enhanced sense of self that the fan gets from being next to or in the audience of the famous person. And another point you make too is the fan also plays a role in shaping the celebrity or the, the famous person. You know, before Alexander, he, Alexander the Great, he had complete control over the message of what, what it meant to be Alexander. Like he had the coins, he got to basically, he, he had complete control over public relations. When you bring in fans, like fans, all these different people who, you know, look up to you, they, they have a say in what is said about you. And that can be kind of scary because it could be good or bad. 
Well, of course. I mean, that is, you know, and this is true. We've seen it with uh, with movie stars, and they're very aware of this, I think. That is, there's a kind of relationship between the famous person, the celebrity, and the audience. And I would say celebrity almost more, almost more than famous person because it is really about immediacy. When the the fan turns away, when the fan decides that the celebrity has done them wrong in some way, that could be disastrous for the celebrity or even with the passage of time. I mean, we look back, uh, you know, at the, at the great actors uh, that we knew when we were younger and, you know, a lot of them are not around anymore and they're, you know, they're replaced by new people too. So it's, you know, the, the, the fan, the audience of the fans is what, what's creates, helps create the celebrity. The celebrity obviously has a lot to do with this. You know, the celebrity draws you in to begin with, but in fact, then it becomes a more reciprocal relationship between the fan and the celebrity. And, you know, we can see this in politics, certainly, you know, and when, when uh, people who are enamored of, of a, a politician or something, and all of a sudden decide that that politician has done them wrong or is, is irrelevant to the present moment, uh, they turn away. So in the 19th century, you see the democratization of fame. You also see this idea of sort of Good fame, vulgar fame, turning away from public fame if that was vulgar. But what happens to fame in the 20th century? How, how does it change? Well, I mean, from a, from a sour point of view, from a kind of negative point of view, I think fame in the 20th century becomes more and more uh, superficial often. That is, it's about performance. I mean, superficial, let's say, can I use superficial in a kind of neutral way? I sure. mean, that is, it's about surfaces, there. Uh, it's about performance. I'm uh, just remembering, you know, Cary Grant had a line supposedly where he said that, you know, every everybody wants to be Cary Grant. I want to be Cary Grant. You know, that is, he had that separation from, from his own image there. In terms of cultural history and intrigue, you know, the, who's, a, who's a great hero? Who's a famous person in the 19th century? It's often an inventor. It might be an engineer. It might be somebody who you know who does uh, you know great earthworks and things like that. Who's the famous person in the 20th century? It's an actor, an actress. It's somebody who performs uh, in that way. That is, what is in other words, if you if we recreate the fame hierarchy, who's at the top? It's really the performers who are at the top in the 20th century, and performance is is a an, an aspect of self of social way of being, it's who you are to other people, it often doesn't have a lot to do with doing anything. It's a fame of being rather than a fame of doing there. You don't have to achieve anything. What did you actually do to become famous? doesn't make any difference. There was a, uh, in Los Angeles for many years, there was a woman named Angeline who would appear on billboards driver and she drove around in a pink Mustang and everything. And once she was asked, um, what, you know, what are you, you're very famous. We see your image around town on billboards and places like that. What are you famous for? And she says, I'm not famous particularly for anything because to do anything would undermine the purity of my fame. Just paraphrasing there, but you know, it's, that is, it's pure. You don't do anything to become famous. You just be. And I think that, that kind of fame is something that has become much more pervasive in the in the 20th century and and in the 21st century for that matter. Well, let, let's talk about that. You know, so you, like you said, we you originally published Frenzy in 1986. You did an updated afterward in 1996. You know, one of the arguments you make is that as the modes of communication increase and become more democratized, the ability to access 
fame increases, like it's more accessible. And so basically everyone has sort of like a low grade fever of Frenzy the Renown. You, the, 1996, that was right before the internet really took off, way before social media. Now we have the internet and social media where anybody basically with a smartphone and the right app can become famous overnight, can go viral. Uh, I'm curious, how is your thinking about, like, what, what do you think the state of fame is in the 21st century, taking into account all these innovations with uh, communication technology? Well, one thing I feel is that we need another word uh, beside famous for this. I'm not sure exactly what that would be. I mean, because, you know, as we've been discussing, you know, fame has a lot of positive characteristics to it as we look over the centuries, you know, fame for for being a great X, Y, or Z, whatever it is, you know, a great painter, or, you know, whatever, a great general, a great politician, uh all sorts of greatness that is connected to greatness and, and it's connected, let's say, to, to the eye of posterity that will look upon you, uh, you know, even after you're gone and will think uh, that you did something worthwhile. But um, these kinds of fames are so evanescent. Andy Warhol, of course, had that, I'm not going to call famous, let's say a notable, his notable saying that in the future people will be famous for 15 minutes, but now they could be famous for 30 seconds. And, you know, the question to me always is, which 15 minutes? You know, is it something that you really value? Is it something that's really worthwhile? Or is it, you know, is it just, uh, you know, because you're an influencer, because you're on TikTok, you know, because you did something funny uh, or something idiotic or whatever it is? I mean, the democratization of fame doesn't mean that everybody's famous. It means that everybody could be famous, but the real question is, how do you stay famous? How do you stay on top? How do you, how do you, uh, once you get that toehold in the mountain of fame, how do you maintain it? How do you keep on climbing? How do you change? What do you do next? You know, what's, <laughs> you know, Scott Fitzgerald said there are no second acts in American lives. Uh, maybe he was talking about this. That is, you know, you get in there, you do your first act. It's fantastic. Then you, then you said, what else do you have? I don't have anything. I'm gone. <laughs> this is it. I mean, as as a cultural critic, like what effects do you see this desire to go viral on TikTok or YouTube? What do you think it's doing to our culture? Well, I think it's 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 fragmenting our attention for for real, you know, for real fame. Let's say for real possibilities. You know, it's uh, of course, yeah. I have to say, because of the pandemic, I think you know people are looking for distraction. The people are looking, you know, they're playing video games, they're doing crossword puzzles, they're they're doing checking out TikTok or Instagram or whatever it is there. So maybe that has enhanced it. I wonder what will happen, you know, when keeping our fingers crossed, we go back to to the new, the old normal or some version of the old normal mixed with the new normal. That is the need for distraction won't be as, as intense as it is now. So I think that's sort of hothoused a lot of what's been going on with social media, you know, in the last nine or 10 months or so. But my, you know, my main point remains the same. That is in terms of these individuals who are doing this on social media, what are they going to do next? You know, what are they going to stay famous? Do they actually have good taste? You know, those people who are saying this is, this is the kind of clothes you should wear and, and various uh, clothing companies and places like that are, uh, you know, are paying them to do this or, you know, are the Taste moves on too, you know, taste changes uh, as well. So much of our lives are lived online now 
that the you know these people influencers and and etc have a uh, have a role to play whether they'll continue to play that role i'm not sure i would you know i would think things are going to change it's going to change in some way and i think I hope will will change a little bit more for the better. Well, yeah. In, in the the afterward in the 1996 edition of Friends of Renown, you made a call for sort of a, a restoration of personal honor and dignity to counter this. I don't know. We would what would we call? It? You don't want to call this what's this social media fame fame, but like you're 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 making a call for something kind of hearkening back to that really I guess ennobling idea of fame that a fame of doing good and helping making the world a better place and being famous for that. Well I think I suppose I would still stand by that, uh, that 1996 uh, afterward in that way. It's just a question of what does personal honor and dignity mean to counter the frenzy of renown. And maybe in terms of the, you know, our overall discussion of these, of these different things, it's kind of going back to that internal sense of values. Let's say that the Stoics and other more philosophic groups were looking for, as opposed to the, you know, the standing in front of other people in large crowds kind of fame. What is integrity? Remember, we were talking about authenticity before. And we might say, you know, connect authenticity to integrity. Do you, do you believe in laws? Do you believe in values and ethics and things like that? And do you act in accordance with your belief? Certainly, uh, a lot of people have, have stepped up recently during the pandemic, you know, have contributed in a variety of ways from a position of, of values. That is, what are the values that are involved with this? You know, it's fun. Fame, you know, celebrity fame is fun, but it is, I'll go back to it. It's superficial. It's about performance. It's not about a kind of acting that has a, has a weight that impresses history almost that, that connects with, with values across time, whether those values are eternal values, political values, legal values, whatever they are, something a little more abstract, let's say, something a little more connected to a conception of how my behavior affects other people, you know, and how I belong to a living, breathing community that needs to be continued and needs more people to establish those values and to live by those values. Well, Leo, this has been a great conversation. Thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Oh, my pleasure, Brett. Really enjoyed it. My guest today was Leo Brody. We talked about his book, The Frenzy of Renown. It's available on Amazon.com. Highly recommend you pick it up. It's one of my favorite books. It's one of those books where the footnotes are just as interesting as the main text. Let's check it out. Find out more information about his work at his website, leobrody.com. That's L-E-O-B-R-A-U-D-Y.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash fame, where you find links to resources where we delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years. And if you'd like to enjoy our ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you would think would get something out of it. As always, Always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brad McKay. Remind you to not only listen to the podcast, but put what you've heard into action.